Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series, I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas will shape our future. Today, I talk to Ilan Urbach, professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University and member of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. So robots. Robots have been capturing the imagination of the public for decades now. Uh, how far are we now in terms of scientific knowledge, technical capacity, uh, in creating an intelligent robot that can interact safely with humans? Well, it's interesting. We have made a lot of progress in robotics over the many years, but a nice way to think about it is to divide up the progress we've made in terms of perception and actuation. And in fact, one of the biggest challenges that robotics has always had is the part where the computational system is connecting to the physical world. This uh, advances more slowly than all of the computational and AI sides of robotics in general. Because mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, electrical engineering, they are not subject to the whole idea of exponential speed up like computers are. So for example, if we just look at battery technology, for many years we could make a robot that does something interesting for five minutes, but the battery doesn't last. And so having, for instance, an exoskeleton on somebody's legs that allows them to walk for the first time, but doing that all day long was just impossible unless you have a gasoline or diesel engine. And that was really unaffordable un, un, uh, un or impossible to imagine in terms of carbon dioxide offset. So uh, electric and battery technology is one area where, in fact, we have made significant advances recently with lithium polymer technology to the point where five or ten minutes has become several hours. And so for the first time, the idea of robots that can balance on two or four legs and move around in society is becoming more feasible. And it's very likely in the next five years that that aspect of robotics, the energy efficiency problem, will in fact be more or less solved for a daytime robot. If we look at uh, mechanism in terms of actuation, another major problem has been motors. How do we make systems like the knees and elbows of a human? You know, we have two amazing systems in a human body. First we can have very powerful motors. Our elbows and our knees can lift very large amounts of weight. At the same time, they have a great deal of elasticity. Uh, they don't hurt each other, right? Your elbow, even though it can lift many, many kilograms, when you swing your arm out and hit me, you very quickly can become loose. And so you can be responsive to that and not hurt me. And for years, robots were stuck behind chain link fences in automotive industry plants, because if they hit you, they would put a hole in your head. And in fact, the first robot uh, death uh, where a robot killed a human was in an automotive plant where a human being accidentally stepped over the line and the robot arm hit him in the head. And there was no elasticity, there was no recognition by the robot that it was hitting a human. Today we have new kinds of motors called series elastic actuators where they have springs essentially coupled with motors. And the spring gives it a kind of ability to conform to the pressures around it. And these have come online just in the last five to ten years. It's very likely that in the next five to ten years, you'll see knee joints, elbow joints, finger joints that are small, compact systems, but fast and powerful and elastic enough for us to actually imagine having them in the human sphere, acting as if they are on the human body or on a robot that behaves with us shoulder to shoulder with us rather than behind a piece of glass or a chain link fence. The last part is perception. Um, we often think, well, robots have perceptual systems like cameras, so they should see the world like us with our eyes. But in fact, the problem is most of the perceptual systems that have worked very well over the years work in laboratory environments. They work in situations where the lighting conditions don't change. 
Our eyes are amazingly good at accommodating huge dynamic ranges in dark and bright conditions. And interpreting data that's very difficult to interpret uh, without a brain that fills in the gaps. And it's only very recently that we managed to break a lot of the robot's eyes out of the lab and into the physical world. So again, that's one where in the next 10 to 15 years we're going to see good perception. So all in all, we're much further than we were in the past. I'd say we're still 5 to 10 years away from robots being robust enough to be out in the world with us all the time. But we're headed in that direction. And you're safe guess is that in the next decade or two we will see something like that? I believe we will see uh, robots in the wild in the next <laughs> decade or two. I think the most exciting kind of robots we're going to start seeing in the wild are ones that aren't uncoupled from humans and therefore they don't need to be completely autonomous. They're the ones that are basically attached to you. And I'm thinking of robot human synthesis systems, uh, android systems that have human and robot components. The most exciting one always for me is the elimination of the wheelchair. You know, we need wheelchairs to become extinct. And this is finally becoming possible. Now, cost-wise, it's difficult right now. So cost-wise, we have to make massive strides in uh, low-cost production of motors. But in terms of the technology underlying that, the idea of humans walking with exoskeletons and being eye-to-eye -eye with you, being eye-level with you, even though they can't use their legs, being able to take a hike with you and walk down the street and walk down a trail in the woods. That's coming. And that's going to be a way where robotics has major impact on a huge proportion of society that is limited and impaired in their mobility. And that's not just handicapped people. That includes, of course, the elderly. Anybody subject to bone uh, damage if they were to walk and break their hip, for example. Fascinating. Now, let's move to a, as, uh, another theme that is in everyone's mind when they talk about robots in the future is will they take our jobs or will they help us do our jobs better? Uh, and this is both a question on your, on your idea of how, where is it going and, then, uh, and also a question of what do we do about it. So this is a fundamental question about robots and underemployment and uh, what is the trend going to be? You know, China, was it last year, built more robots than they hired human beings. And uh, we've crossed that threshold where productivity gains throughout manufacturing industries are largely due to automation and robotics. And so, for instance, in America, the automation and manufacturing industry, manufacturing is actually gaining on GDP in America every year, and yet employment is going down every year because the specific productivity of the robots being used is increasing and the cost is going down. So fundamentally, robots are already able to do a lot of the mid-skill level jobs in the manufacturing world, such as milling and lathing in machining. The challenge is the robots are becoming both cheaper every year and able to do more sophisticated work. So the set of jobs that the human machinist has to do is diminishing. And yet all the mid-level machinists who could possibly spend money getting trained to become a high-level machinist, you need fewer of them. So you have a collapsing marketplace. The fundamental challenge is that it's not a question of whether robots will take our jobs. The fundamental problem is flow and rate. Robots will always every year get better at doing what, we, what they do, and they'll get cheaper at doing what we do. So whatever the place is that they are on the curve of taking over our jobs, that place moves. It's a never-ending frontier that shifts. And that's the fundamental problem, is the very dynamic nature of the relationship of the boundary between robots and humans. Now, how do we solve this? Fundamentally, it's about design thinking. It's about the way we decide to have values around the question of designing robots 
and designing the relationship between robots and humans. Uh, you can fundamentally decide that you want robots to help humans to enable safety and increase productivity. Now that's still going to take jobs because a ro more productive human-robot team will mean other humans don't have to work. But you can do it that way. Alternatively, it is relatively simple for manufacturing industries, for instance, to decide to redesign their factories, spend significant capital equipment to enable robots that are lower cost to completely replace humans to basically program humans out of the new capital structure of the infrastructure. The fundamental challenge with that is that you're shifting labor income to capital income. You're basically having companies choose capital as a place of wealth rather than labor. And when you do that, you actually exacerbate another problem, which is inequality in wealth. So really the fundamental question becomes, is the way in which we're going to incorporate robots in factories, in machining operations, for instance, one in which will exacerbate the wealth disparity because we'll have a flow from labor to capital? Or are we willing to accept a lower level of productivity increase and have the robots help the humans in such a way that humans still have some dignity and some jobs? And that's a business decision. You know, you don't actually have to maximize profit in a company. You can decide to have enough profit. And so you still face a fundamental business decision about how many humans you're going to have on staff. Is there a role or a responsibility of those that are developing these kind of technologies? Absolutely, there is a responsibility for the developers. You know, one of the challenges that I see all the time, and I hear it in meetings and conferences here at Davos and elsewhere, is that people like to say technology is neutral. Technology is just a tool, it's how people use it that induces value. And I actually think this is complete nonsense. Technology is not, use, not neutral because we as technologists, when we design technology, have massive impact on the downstream implications of how technology is used. If I design a robot, and I design it in such a way that it does autonomous driving completely, and it's a robot that has no steering wheel on board, then I've designed a piece of autonomous driving software that's whole purpose is to replace a human driver. Alternatively, and you can look at, for instance, Mercedes-Benz for this, if I design a robotic car where there's still a, a steering wheel, but if the human falls asleep, it actually takes control of the wheel. Or if the crash is guaranteed to happen, it pushes on the brake, even if the human doesn't push on the brake. Then you're in a situation where you have decreased mortality in accidents, but you have not disempowered humans from the act of driving. And fundamentally, this is the question we face. Will the engineers use good human-computer interaction techniques to design robots that are shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with humans but empower humans? Or will the engineers explicitly design robots that replace human functionality? Is this a trend in the academic society, in the research society? Uh, is there a significant vein of technologists and researchers that are supporting this argument that we need to be much more driven uh, of our technological development, driven by the, the effects that we assume that they're going to have? Unfortunately, it is not a trend, and it's a kind of a bad trend right now. There's two interesting dynamics going on right now. One, people are talking about ethics and robotics, but the way most engineers and technologists talk about it is, let's inject ethical decision-making into the robot. So they talk about the ways in which a robot can use ethics to decide, for instance, if we're going to crash, should I kill the child on the right or the older lady on the left? <laughs> so ethics has become wrapped up in AI decision-making within the computational system of the robot rather than the metacognitive question of the ethics of the engineer, teaching engineers how to use ethical thinking to design. And this is a shame. 
A second interesting trend that goes with this is, is quite fascinating. Because humans are really good at understanding the cues of other humans, the gestures, the facial expressions, the emotional affect of humans, roboticists who study human-robot interaction are more and more every year taking advantage of that by hijacking the cues humans provide and having their robots provide the same cues. So the robots can say things like, I'm very sad that you're not talking to me. Or I'm very hungry, would you plug me in, please? And the challenge that we face here is that we're using essentially fiction. We're pretending that robots have emotion, we're pretending that they have affect, because it makes their ability to manipulate humans and cause humans to do what they wish more effective, more productive. Uh, it's kind of like imagining fake news on the internet as a means for causing you to click on an ad and generate revenue. By the same token, having a robot shed a tear will cause you to pay more attention to it, and then you might click on the ad and buy the thing the robot is selling. So this is a real challenge, because uh, it is true that we can more effectively manipulate humans by making robots more human-like. But if we do that by giving those robots simulated aspects of humanity, then we will start inducing agency upon the robots. And if we start ascribing agency to robots, which are not agents, then this asks fundamental questions about what kind of rights we should give to those robots and how we should not abuse them. How do we solve this, Sila? What is, what is uh, some of the ideas that you have in, in your discussions with your council and also here in Davos? Have you heard some ideas that could help us go towards the right direction in terms of how we use robots and how we allow them to play a part uh, both in our economy but also in our society? I think it is entirely possible for us to solve this, and I'm very happy in the Council to hear about two different kinds of thrusts of ideas which are critical to this. One has to do with econometric analysis, with our ability to reveal the economic impact robots can have, to understand the dynamics of how robots can change society in terms of inequity, in terms of power hegemony, in terms of control. If we can surface that discourse and actually talk about it explicitly, that's powerful because that's the first step in being able to share enough common ground to imagine possible futures and choose from among those possible futures. The second thing that I see in the Council that's also very powerful is about education. It's about the recognition that we need uh, all the stakeholders in the robotics community, from the uh, master's degree and PhD degree holder uh, in robotics, to the corporate CTO who decides on how to institutionalize robotics in his company or her company, we need all of the different stakeholders to actually understand the ethical ramifications of how we design robots now so that we can have influence on the future of how robots are designed and deployed in society. And these are both very doable because these are very human actions, right? Talking about ethics and talking about economic impact. And I'm very happy to see a lot of economic analysts actually start to talk about this in the public now. Um, <coughs> A wonderful gentleman, Dick Goodman, is a professor of economics at Harvard. He's gone on the road now and has started to talk about the economic impact of automation and robotics on society and ways in which we solved these very problems of capital ownership early in the colonial times. So he quotes John Adams from the 1780s and says, look, these same quotes apply now. And by rethinking capital distribution and wealth, we can actually solve the same problems today. That sounds... Encouraging, the, the future is not very gloomy. What about policymakers? Have you had interactions with them? Where, where, where do you see, do they have uh, an idea of where this is going in the next 10 to 15 years? Or have they already started thinking of how to, to put in some regulations that can contain uh, the bad effects that they might have? 
That's a great question. I think policymakers uh, often have so much on their plate that they end up behind the curve slightly. In this case, though, the discourse among policymakers is also very strong on this question of the ethics of, ro of robotics replacing human jobs. And specifically on this job side, I think I see policymakers coming to some uh, more complete understanding together than they would have had before in maybe two years ago. But fundamentally, what policymakers are wondering is about rate. How soon do I have to worry about this question of dynamics of jobs in my country? And to solve this problem, we require a kind of open dialogue between policymakers of different countries. Because if we're going to think about ethical or regulatory frameworks around robots, this is something that has to happen across borders. If it happens in one country, then with fluid uh, trade, you will simply move high-productivity robotic manufacturing to another country. So this is something that really needs a global kind of concerted effort for us to make progress. So the trend is not extremely positive, but there are the forces in play that are trying to make the difference and to make this into a, a positive change for humanity. I hope we, we succeed. Ila, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure, Rigas. That was Ila Nurbaksh, professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. My name is Rigas Adzilakos, and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse into the Future.